This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Please open your Bibles, if you would, to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We're in the middle of a series where we are working our way through James, and uh, today we're reading verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2. James 2, verses 1 through 7. If you're new to the Bible, uh, this is be sort of towards the end of the Bible. Just a few books follow James. James 2, 1 through 7. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for all of scripture. But today we particularly thank you for the book of James as we study and we hear your voice through this word in such tangible and practical ways. Lord, we pray that we would listen to you today. We pray that we would be quick to hear as you've instructed us. We pray that we would not only be quick to hear, but we would be hearers and doers of your word. So, Lord, we invite you to speak to our hearts. We ask you to open our eyes. Lord, we ask you to soften our hearts that we'd be responsive today. And we pray that we would be responsive with great joy as we seek to glorify you as a church. Lord, we also pray, and centrally, we pray that you would magnify the person and work of Christ today as we look at this text. Oh, Lord, be big in our eyes, and may your work be cherished and adored among us, and may we be responsive to you, the one who has laid down your life to make us your friends, to reconcile us to yourself. Speak, Lord, and change us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. James has a way of getting to the point. James has a way of sort of meddling, doesn't he? I mean, I've heard the, the old saying when, the, when application ga- came in a sermon, they said the preacher stopped preaching and commenced to meddling. He began to meddle in people's affairs. And James, from the first verse by the Holy Spirit, just meddles in our lives. He just snoops. He just pokes his head in by the power of the Spirit and calls us out. And at the end of chapter 1, this has really been clear as James has been talking about being a hearer and a doer of the Word. Back in verse 18, he had written that you became a Christian, if you're a Christian, to the people he was writing to as Christians, you became a Christian by the Word of truth. God brought you forth. That is, he gave you new life. It's imagery of birth. God gave you birth and new life. He brought you forth by the Word of God. You heard the Scripture. You heard the Gospel told you the good news that Jesus died for sinners to forgive sinners and was resurrected from the dead. You heard that news, and by God's power you believed, and you were brought forth in truth. And now you are to continue to be a hearer of the Scripture, you know, or a reader. You're to be exposed to Scripture, to be a hearer of Scripture, and to be quick to hear, he says. And not only be quick to hear, but also 
be quick to act. Be a hearer and a doer, he says at the end of chapter 1. We're to be people who hear God's word and then respond and apply it in our lives. And that brings growth in our lives. And then he says, then he addresses what doing actually looks like. He gives a few instances. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that we can respond to God's word, but he just gives a few. And he says, listen, true religion or pure religion is not just external worship like what we're doing here today. It's not just showing up at a meeting and singing some songs and listening attentively, though all of that's important. But it's being transformed internally. Pure religion is taking action motivated by an internal change so that these kind of things happen in our lives. We have controlled speech, he says. He said it's, it, it's a sham to come to church and say the right things and sing the right things and then not to pay attention to our speech the rest of the week. So he said we need to be careful with our speech. We, we need to care for the needy. He says pure religion is, is religion that is co- concerned about needy people. And he highlights two classes of needy people, widows and orphans. And, and then he says that true religion is to keep oneself unstained by the world. It's not to embrace the, it's to avoid embracing the, the mindset of the world, which is opposed to God. And it's to live in the good of God's word, not to think like those who don't know God, not to have the same desires, aspirations, goals, and values of those who live their lives as if God doesn't exist, but rather to live a life unstained by the world, in the world, participating in the world, functioning in the world, connecting with the world, but not absorbing the mindset of the world. So that's what he says, that we are to have pure religion, to be a hearer and a doer. And in the passage we just read, he begins to address how this works itself out in the community, the gathered church. So, so what does pure religion look like among the people of God, relationally? What does it look like to be a hearer and a doer of God's Word? And he gives an, an example of it here in this passage, and he addresses the problem, which is a human problem, which is always a human problem, which is a human problem not only out there, but in here, in the church as well, and that is the problem of showing favoritism to some people. That's how he addresses this issue. Look at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. His... His address here is interesting because he's going to talk about the gathered. He's about to paint a scenario, which we just read, of what if this happened in your gathered community. But before he does that, it's interesting how he addresses the church. My brothers. He starts off, catch this, by saying the church is first and foremost a family and not a club. The church is a family and not a club. So when you think about gathering together, think about brothers and sisters. And when he uses brothers here, it's an inclusive term, meaning brothers and sisters. It's family. What, what makes us family? Well, what makes us family is that we hold, he says, the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ or in our Lord Jesus Christ. That we are those who are relating to God the Father. And we're those who are relating to God the Father because of belief in Jesus Christ. We have trusted Christ as our Savior. We have believed that He is the one who has died for our sins and given us new life. We've been reconciled with the Father. We had made ourselves enemies because of our sin. But now we've been reconciled to the Father. And so we are all in a family together. We have a common relationship with God based on faith in Jesus Christ. And thus faith in Jesus Christ is... Uh, it is just not, uh, it's not acceptable to have preferential treatment when we are all brothers and sisters by virtue of what Christ has done for us. You see, regardless of what one's status in the world may be, regardless of how one may be viewed by society or culture, regardless of one's status of gender or race, One's socioeconomic status, their wealth, one's intelligence, one's strength, one's power, one's fame, regardless of that, all come in the exact same way to Jesus Christ. All come as needy sinners in need of a Savior. So no matter how the culture would regard someone, anyone who's a Christian has come to Jesus the exact same way, contributing nothing to their salvation but the sin that has to be forgiven. 
So no one comes as rich, wealthy, good-looking, together, moral, famous, powerful, influential, intelligent. Everybody comes at one way, sinful. Sinful. Dead. In darkness. That's how everybody comes to Jesus Christ. It's been said that the, the ground is level at the cross. There's no homeless and king. I mean, there's no boring and exciting. There's no ugly and attractive. There's no dull. There's no rock star, famous athlete. Everybody is desperate to have their sins forgiven and comes to the Father trusting Jesus Christ and He forgives our sins and makes us brothers. We hold a common faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We're a family, and so there's to be no partiality shown in the family as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And this word glory is really important here. The Lord of glory. Now, it can be translated, some say our glorious Lord, or as it says here, the Lord of glory, or some would say the Lord, the glory, that actually a title for Christ would be the glory. And so whichever one of those options are chosen, it's essentially the same thing. Jesus Christ is the glory of God. Alex Mateer describes this word glory this way. He says, glory is shorthand for the personal presence of the Lord in all goodness and in the fullness of his revealed character. Glory, the personal presence of the Lord in all his goodness, in the fullness of his revealed character. He goes on, the Lord Jesus Christ is God's glory. God himself among us in all his goodness and in the full revelation of his person. Now, before we get into this scenario about two people showing up at church, this verse is very important to understand. Because what he's basing this not treating the rich person with preferential treatment, he's basing this all on these theological points, that we're brothers, that we have a common faith in Jesus Christ, thus all, uh, all ground is level at the foot of the cross, and that Jesus is our glory. He's not going to just give a moralistic statement like, treat everybody equal, everybody is special. This is not Barney. Everybody's special, everybody's a winner, everybody's great. I mean, this is not communism. Everybody is equal in every way. And those who are in the party are more equal than the rest of you. But everybody is equal. It's not communism. It's not syrupy Barney. It's not humanistic ideals. It's specifically uh, uh, theological in its nature. That because these things have happened, because these things are true of Christ, they should affect the way we relate to others. He's saying that Jesus Christ is the glory of God. Jesus is the very presence of God. And so brothers, before he says when you gather, brothers, remember this, that Jesus is the glory, that Jesus is the one you glory in, that Jesus is the one you glorify, that Jesus is the revelation of God, the presence of God, the nature of God, that no one or nothing compares to Jesus Christ. He's shaking the church and saying, hey, don't show favoritism because Christ is everything. He is preeminent. He is glorious. He is wonderful. All of our attention and all of our affection should be directed to Him, especially when we gather for worship. Our minds are to be directed to Him. Our affections are to be stirred by Him. Our hearts are to be overflowing with a love for Him. The the, the gathered community is to be focused on Jesus Christ in a preeminent way. He's the glory. He's the glory of God. And so he's saying, when you come together, don't, what did he say right before? Don't be stained by the world. Don't bring in the mindset of the world. Don't gather as the church and embrace the mindset of the view of the world. Don't be impressed with what impresses the world. Be impressed with Jesus. That's not a bad definition of a Christian. It doesn't say all that there is to be a Christian, but impressed with Jesus A vision of Christ, as we sang this morning, Lord, be thou my vision. It's incompatible to sing, Lord, be thou my vision. Now I like him and I don't like her and I'm impressed by him and I'm not impressed by him. If Christ is my vision, it will affect the way I view other people. 
And so he's making a theological argument before he gives the practical situation. See, those who don't know Christ have certain values that cause them to evaluate people, to assign people status, to rank people. And when he says don't be unstained by the world, he's not talking about being an isolationist. He's talking about don't embrace the same ranking system that the world embraces. See, the world has a ranking system about what is cool, and depending on who you ask, you'll get a different answer. What is cool? What is great? What's really impressive? What's stylish? What's in? What's to be respected? What's to be esteemed? What's to be honored? And James is saying, listen, don't embrace those rankings. Consider instead you all are on equal ground before Jesus Christ. You are all fundamentally status of sinner who has been saved by grace. That's your status. And so based on that, don't show favoritism. And secondly, the Lord is the glory. Be be enamored with the glory of Jesus Christ, the greatness of God who has saved you. Allow that to affect how you view other people. He is the glorious one. And he will affect how we think about others, how we view them. Pure religion is a faith in Christ as Savior in which we realize our need for a Savior and His great saving power. We're caught up in His glory and thus we treat others with an equal compassion, affection, love. We view them as Christ's, Christ views them, not as the world views them. And this is just challenging. This is very, very difficult for all of us. Because we lose sight of Christ regularly and fix our eyes on evaluating and assigning status and judging and assessing people in the same way the world does. Saying there's a list of desirable characteristics and a list of undesirable characteristics. And I want to be and I like and I want to aspire to be people on the desirable character list. The problem is that list rarely mirrors Christ's list. It's rare that humility appears on that list. Sacrifice for others. Love of God. Glorifying Jesus. Those usually don't appear on that list. And herein is the problem. So he gives this scenario, verse 2. He says, basically, two people show up for church. Verse 2. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you will pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? First guy walks into the assembly. This may have been in somebody's home, may have been like a home church meeting. We don't know, but um, walks in. So it may may have felt more like a care group in our church, or it may have been a bigger assembly. But somebody walks in and they're dressed very nicely. They've got a gold ring which is not just like a wedding band, but a status of, a, a symbol of status. Someone who's arrived, someone who's got some money, someone who's showing off their bling on Sunday morning. They've got something to demonstrate. They are somebody. They have it. And they're also wearing fine clothing. Now, what's so interesting to me is this word fine can also be translated bright or shiny. It has the, it has the idea of something that's fine because it's bright, it's noticeable maybe even shiny. And I think it's very interesting that that's being contrasted to Christ who is our glory. Because when the Bible talks about the glory of God, it usually carries an idea of his radiant holiness. His effulgence is a word that's used, which means this this blinding light that emanates from his character. So I think it's very fascinating that this guy would be described as shiny clothing in essence. I think two glories are being contrasted here at some degree. The glory of this guy who has the, earth fine, the earth's finery, who has a, you know, jewelry, fancy clothing, is wealthy and shows it and stands out. The glory of this guy is apparent to everybody who walks in. And they contrast him in the story with a poor man that walks in who is in shabby clothing. He's in rags is what that really means. You've probably interacted or met um, a homeless person at some time, 
with soiled clothing, mismatched clothing, smelly clothing. That's what's in view here. The guy in tattered rags who's unkempt, unmatched, and smells is contrasted with the guy who has the finest attire, is put together, probably known in the area, powerful, wealthy, influential. The two people come in, and he's saying, how do you treat them in that scenario? To the influential, powerful guy, he's saying, if you say, hey, you sit over here, we have a seat prime for you in the meeting where you can see and be seen, where others around you will notice you, where you'll be comfortable. And then to the poor guy, it doesn't even offer him a seat. Uh, you can stand over there, is what it says. Now, these are probably both new people because they're having to be told where to go, you know. So they're probably a newer person into the meeting. They're being directed, and uh, they're being told where to sit. Here, I guess I never thought about this, but here's an implicit passage talking about the ministry of ushers. Thankful to our ushers, you appear right here. You could be doing a really bad job or a really good job, depending on how you respond to this passage. But I guess they're actually telling people where to sit. So here we have the ministry of ushers in James uh, chapter 2. So helping them sit down. So do you look on the outside and send someone over here and over there based on their status? When it says sit at my feet, that would be the position of a servant in the house. The servant would sit on the ground, maybe at the feet of the owner of the home or something like that. So we're going to treat you like a slave. You're here to visit our home or you're here to visit our assembly. You're here to visit our meeting place, wherever we're having church. You're here to gather with the church. So we're going to treat you like someone who's hired help or owned help. Just sit at our feet or stand up. He says, if you do that, it is wrong. He says, verse uh, 3, if you pay attention to the one in fine clothing, if you pay attention If you give special care and interest to that person, you're making distinctions, he says, and you've become judges with evil thoughts. You've made distinctions and you become judges with evil thoughts. What he's saying is that you have placed yourself in a position of judging and assessing, which is not your position to begin with, and you've not only done that, but you've embraced an inappropriate standard for judgment, you're judging based on external appearance. So not only are you in the wrong seat as the judge, but you're using the wrong standard, an external view. And we know that because of the word that's used, partiality. In verse 1, show no partiality, or the NIV translates it, no favoritism. It's a word that literally means receiving the face. It means receiving the face, and it's being translated favoritism or partiality. Receiving the face means you receive someone based on their external appearance. You look at them from the outside, and you make an assessment. And the Scripture says that God doesn't look on people the way man does, that man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. So here is the church, which is to be distinct from the world, and if we treat people this way, we are setting ourselves up as judges, which is inappropriate to begin with, and we are taking the judgment of the world because the world assesses people on an external front by an external nature, but the church is to mirror the heart of God. We're to reflect the attitude of Christ who looks at the heart and sees everyone as sinners in need of salvation so that we all have the same faith in our Lord Jesus Christ as brothers and sisters. You see how verse 1 ties into these verses. Don't make a judgment based on external appearance. And James says that's not just shallow. I mean, some people might say shallow. If you just judge a book by its cover, you're shallow. You don't really think deeply about people. James doesn't say it's shallow. James says it's judgment with evil thoughts. James, James just doesn't pull punches. James isn't really wanting to give everybody a kind of a mulligan on this one. And, and, and uh, you know, it's okay. James is saying, it's an evil thought. You're evil in your judgments if that's how you treat people. Evil. That's a strong assessment. That is a serious indictment. If we assess people the way the world does instead of assessing them as God does, our assessments are evil. Not only because we are embracing the standards of the world, but because we are ignoring the glory that matters most. See, that moment 
when those folks come into the worship service and the assessment starts of them based on how they look and they're treated a certain way, the one who is the glory has been pushed to the side. It's really not the poor man that's told you stand over there. It's Jesus Christ that's told you get over here. You are no longer the glory that captures our attention. We are now dazzled not by your person in work. We are dazzled by a wealthy, influential person. And so now we are currying his favor rather than glorifying you for having favor on us in our sin. The glory that matters most is silenced. The glory that matters most is ignored. And the glory of man, the values of man, the human way of thinking in a world that is rebellious towards God is elevated. And the very church which is to make a distinction looks just like the world at this moment. That's what's so serious about this. That's why it's evil. It's about the glory of God. It's about why are we even here? It's about what does it even mean to be a Christian, to honor the Lord of glory when His glory is eclipsed by a heart which embraces the world's standards. And so the worship service all of a sudden is redirected. It's directed away from Jesus. And it's directed towards a wealthy man. The status of the world becomes the status of the church. Furthermore, James says, this is wrong to marginalize the poor because God loves the poor. God's heart is towards the poor. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers. Now, again, the family imagery. So James has given everybody a spanking here. I, I don't think he is just painting a what-if scenario. I think this is a scenario that likely happens. It's a scenario that happens in differing ways. I don't think he's just saying, what if? I mean, this would never happen with you guys. But what if someone was treated differently based on their status in the world's eyes? No, he's talking about stuff that really happens daily. But he's still gracious in it all, even as he is correcting them. He, he still says, verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, I love you, brothers and sisters. We're in a family here together. I love you. Remember, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? See, he's saying God's view of people is so different. The world would look at this, if this is a Christian, would look at this Christian and say they're poor, they're separate, they're marginalized, they're unimportant, they're a drain on society, they're incompetent, they're, they're just a bother. Can we clear them up, get them off the streets, get them somewhere so we don't have to look at the homeless? I mean, that's, that's kind of the idea. And he's saying God looks at very differently. He's not looking at clothing. He's not looking at bank accounts. He's looking at the heart. And if that person's a Christian, he's saying that is a rich person. That is a rich person. We talked about this in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1. We did a whole message on this idea that that's a rich person. It's an upside-down kingdom. They are rich because their sins are forgiven and they have this future eternity with Jesus Christ forever. They're heirs of the kingdom. They're going to inherit the kingdom. They're far wealthier than the unbelieving guy who has all the stuff. They are really rich because they know the God who owns everything and are being provided for by the God who has everything and rules it all and sustains it all. So they're very rich. So let's not look at them the way the world does. Let's look at them the way Christ does. If this is a Christian, it is a rich person and God has chosen them. God has set his affection and chosen them. Not only that, but he goes on to say, verse 6, you've dishonored the poor man. By, by putting him in a separate place, you have not given him the honor that God would give to the needy person. And certainly the needy believing person would assess that person differently. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? See, James's church here is likely under persecution in various ways. And one of the ways that they're being persecuted is the rich are persecuting the poor Christians. They are yanking them into court. We don't know exactly what that's for. You know, it could be things like trying to take over their land, uh, trying to enforce things that that are abusive and oppressive in nature. So he's saying these are the very people that persecute you, and these are the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called. They, the word can also be translated slander. They slander God. Why? Well, they don't believe in Christianity. They mock Christianity. They have a whole different set of values than the Scripture teaches us. They wrongly assess Jesus Christ, and yet you want to honor them And in so honoring them, you are embracing the exact same 
values, you're slandering God as well in essence. So these very ones who are opposed to God, you are seeking to curry their favor in some way, if it was an unbelieving rich person that walked in. Maybe you're trying to curry their favor in some way, and you are, by making these kinds of distinctions, making the same distinctions that they make in the culture. And so you're really doing the very same thing. We're called to glory what God glories in called to live for his glory, called to live in a manner that reflects the gospel. Now, here's the reality. We can read this passage, and I don't know about you, but we can give ourselves a pass pretty quickly because we would say this isn't going to really happen here. And in terms of exactly, exactly, literally what's written here, I don't think it would happen here. I don't think if someone came in looking a little down, that the ushers would say, stand in the back or sit at Pete Payne's feet. <laughs> I don't really think they would say that. That's the best seat in the house, by the way, but I don't think they would say that. I don't think if somebody came in dressed in a suit really nicely with a lot of rings, they'd come in and say, where do you want to sit? Oh, you want to sit there? Pete, you go to the back. This guy's going to sit. I, I don't think our ushers would do that. I really don't think that. So we can look at that and go, I don't do that. Matter of fact, when we gather for church, everybody's, I mean, it's just, we don't really have a dress code, very casual. Some people are very casual. Some people dress, nobody really dresses up much, but some people dress up a little bit more than others. But probably, I mean, there are issues of trying to dress to impress others and trying to be in. And I'm sure we all have those issues that we're looking at, overly appearance conscious and that sort of thing. But ultimately, you know, you don't, You can see clumps of people talking at the end of this meeting. One person will be dressed very nicely. One person looks like they just rolled out of bed and showed up at church. Okay, and they're still friends and talking together. So we can look at that and say, boy, isn't that, that's kind of a quaint illustration when there was much more classification in society based on dress. That's really, that's a nice little story. But but I, I think it applies more to just rich clothing and poor clothing. The reason I say that is because verse 1 says, show no partiality. As you hold the faith. Show no favoritism. And so it's not abusing this text to say, you know what, he gives one illustration that's very relevant for there and would be relevant for us as well. But there are illustrations that are probably also relevant as well because when he talks about this partiality, he's talking about not looking on the outside as the world does, not receiving the face. That's what he's talking about. Don't judge a person by their appearance or something about them and welcome them according to the status you assign them. Don't relate to them based on the judgment you place upon them by standards that are not Jesus Christ's standards. That's what he's talking about. And so if we broaden it just a little bit, I think we can see that we all tend to judge people on externals. And we all are tempted to show poor partiality, not just to a homeless person, but to all kinds of people. And so when we gather on Sunday or in our care group, or we meet new people here today, we we can still relate like this. Forget about clothing. What about the person that just sort of grates on your nerves? Which probably reveals a whole lot more about us than it does them. What about that? What about the person that's very, very hard to talk to? You you know, you just stand over there. I don't want to talk to that person because it's always very hard. I'm asking all these questions and not getting much in return. And it's just very awkward. They're very contrary. Whatever I say, they say the opposite. So let's just avoid that person. What about the person that talks too much? I'm just going to go that way, walk right on by, because if they grab me, I'm here for 30 minutes hearing about everything in their lives. See, the problem is other people may be doing that same thing. And this person is marginalized. They are viewed, treated differently. As if I'm really important and my time's all valuable and it's everything, and that person's really unimportant and a bother. Is that how Christ would evaluate? Is that all grounds level at the cross? Is that we all have nothing to contribute to our salvation but the sin which needed to be forgiven and God has shown mercy on us, the hard to talk to and the too talkative as well? What about that kind of category? What about people that do look different than us? So maybe we're not in a culture where if a guy walked in here in a suit, everybody go, whoa. At this church, they might, because nobody wears a suit. But, <clears throat> but whoa, I, that may not happen. But what if someone that looks a little bit different, what if somebody has a hairstyle that would be not very conservative walks in, very rowdy hairstyle, very overtly, extremely tattooed up and pierced, and that's not how you are maybe. 
So is that the person you make a beeline to, or do you immediately begin to make some assessments of that other person? Or what if that is your style? What if your style is to be a little bit more uh, edgy, we could say? That's a neutral term. So a little more edgy. Then how do you relate to the person who's overly conservative? Just overly conservative. I remember a good friend of mine who's a pastor in Sovereign Grace uh, who had started having this kind of rowdy hairstyle a little bit, and so I was just mocking him for it, just giving him a hard time, like, what are you trying to do, and all this, and he came back to me with a great line, he said, well, you know what, you have the same hairstyle you had in seventh grade. <laughs> so what he was saying is that you judge me because I've got product in my hair and I'm on the edge a little bit, but you look like your seventh grade yearbook photo, <laughs> which is actually fairly true if you saw that photo. So what he's saying is, you can say this about me, but, you know, maybe I think you look a little just to leave it to beaver. So those things work both ways. The tatted and the non-tatted can make judgments. Both Christians make judgments towards one another. What if the person walks in who dresses immodestly? How are they treated? Oh, yeah, but we got a verse on that. Sure, we've got verses on that. Maybe they don't know the Lord, and your verses mean nothing to them. So how are they treated? Are they welcomed or are they marginalized? The person who's dressed, quote-unquote, inappropriately, even if it's biblically inappropriate, how is that person treated and viewed? Are they welcomed? Do they feel instantly singled out? Do they feel like, uh, well, how you doing there? You know, is it kind of like a, a condescending feel, or do they feel like they're treated just like anybody else who walks in? What about someone who walks in with a physical disability that's obvious, a physical disability of some sort, a mental disability of some sort? There's limitations. When you encounter them, you realize this person has limitations mentally for some reason. How are they viewed? How are they treated? The person, as I said, who has some kind of maybe physical but what about someone who comes in that we interact with in our care group here that's far less educated than we are, far more simple, quote-unquote, than we are? How do we relate with that person who doesn't think the same way? They're not a thinker and a reader, and maybe you are. Their, their world is totally different. The music they listen to, the entertainment they're interested in, you say, I'm totally at a different place than them. And that works both, works both sides. How do you relate to the person who seems very intellectual, very knowledgeable? Are you intimidated? You would never reach out to someone like that? You say, well, I can't even get in that atmosphere. I don't listen to the same things. I don't have anything to talk about with them. So what about that? People of educational level. Lots of categories could be brought in. Race, age. How do we view people of a different race? How do we view people of a different age than we are? All those things come into play in terms of how we relate to others. What if they're different politically than we are? Oh, yeah, but there's a Christian political view on everything. There's a Christian political party. Uh, No, there's not. I'm sorry to disappoint you. So what if they have a different political view on something than I do? What if they're different culturally, ethnically, all those kinds of things? Here's the truth, that when we relate and care for and honor and serve and welcome people that we find difficult, people that we find uninteresting, people that we find obnoxious, people that we find offensive, people that we find dull, when we relate and welcome folks who are like that in our view, when we put down that view and we highlight a biblical view, the gospel is on display in the church. And yet, on the other hand, when we judge and assess and therefore avoid and treat differently and show partiality, the gospel is denied. Because the gospel is people of all sorts who are sinful being reconciled to God the Father by the blood of Jesus Christ and joined together as a family of different people. The vision of heaven in the book of Revelation is not a bunch of people just like you standing around. It is every tribe, every race, every nation. People that like different food and music and culture. People of different educational levels. Rich, poor, male, female. People who live to be different ages in this life. It's much broader. And and God says based on the gospel we are to welcome others. Christ laid down his life so that we could be welcomed to the Father. And we are in turn to welcome those he welcomes. Romans says this, Romans 15, 7. 
Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You want to glorify God in your life? You want to glorify God on Sunday? Please sing loudly. Please take notes. Please do whatever seems the the, the sort of thing to do to engage in the meeting. But please don't leave out this dimension of how we relate with others. Because that's just vital. That glorifies God when we welcome others the way we've been welcomed. This is grace. And the gospel is to be a place of grace. A gospel-centered church looks this way. Welcoming different people. And guess what? It helps to realize that I am a different person to someone. (laughs) This doesn't just apply to that other person. That other person's thinking about you right now, too. We're all different. Here's an alert. I'm about to use an illustration I've used before. Used illustration alert. Here it comes. Three years ago, I told this story. I read this story that I first heard in a sermon 10 years ago from C.J. Mahaney. But it's a story that Philip Yancey tells. How many of you here weren't here three years ago? Okay, I feel better telling this. Okay. <clears throat> Philip Yancey tells this story. Philip Yancey's a writer who grew up in a hyper, kind of hyper-fundamentalist, uh, illegalistic environment. And he grew up and was a part of an urban church in Chicago and talks about how that changed his view when he got into a broader world that was much more diverse and folks were welcoming people who were different than they and he experienced that. He said this, if only our churches could communicate grace to a world of competition, judgment, and ranking, a world of ungrace, then church would become a place where people gather eagerly without coercion like desert nomads around an oasis. I love what he says. If the church would communicate grace in the midst of a world that's all about ranking, he says that's ungrace. I love that word. Ungrace is ranking. Then the church would be a different place. He says, he tells a story about a young man named Adolphus. He says, I learned an enduring lesson about grace from my church's response to Adolphus. This is this inner city church he's talking about. A young black man with a wild, angry look in his eye. Every inner city church has at least one Adolphus. He had spent some time in Vietnam. This was in the 70s, I suppose. He had spent some time in Vietnam, and most likely his troubles started out there. He could never hold a job for long. His fits of rage and craziness sometimes landed him in an asylum. If Adolphus took his medication on Sunday, he was manageable. Otherwise, well, church could be even more exciting than usual. He might start at the back and high hurdle his way over the pews down to the altar. He might raise his hands in the air during a hymn and make obscene gestures. That'd be a worse experience, wouldn't it? He might wear headphones and tune in bebop music instead of the sermon. As part of worship... The church had a time called prayers of the people. We would all stand and spontaneous people uh, would call out a prayer for peace in the world or the healing of the sick or justice in the community around us. Lord, hear our prayer. We would respond in unison after each spoken request. Adolphus soon figured out that prayers of the people provided an ideal platform for him to air his concerns. Lord, thank you for creating Whitney Houston and her magnificent body, he prayed one morning. After a puzzled pause, a few chimed in weekly, Lord, hear our prayer. (laughs) Lord, thank you for the big recording contract I signed last week and for all the good things happening to my band, prayed Adolphus. Those of us who knew Adolphus realized he was fantasizing, but others joined in with a heartfelt, Lord, hear our prayer. Adolphus called down judgment on all white people in the church who had caused Mayor Harold Washington such stress that he had a heart attack. He gave regular reports on the progress of his music group. Some of these prayers were met with an awkward silence. Once Adolphus prayed that the white, honky pastors of the church would see their houses burned down this week. No one seconded that prayer. (laughs) Adolphus had already been kicked out of three churches. He he preferred attending an all-white church because he enjoyed making white people squirm. 
Once he stood up in a Sunday school class I was teaching and said, if I had an M16 rifle, I'd kill all you people in this room. We white people squirmed. A group of people in the church, including a doctor and a psychiatrist, took on Adolphus as a special project. Every time he had an outburst, they pulled him aside and talked it through, using the word inappropriate a lot. Adolphus, your anger may be justified, but there are appropriate and inappropriate ways to express it. Praying for the pastor's house to burn down is inappropriate. We learned that Adolphus sometimes walked five miles to church on Sunday because he could not afford the bus fare. Members of the congregation began to offer him rides. Some invited him over for meals. Most Christmases he spent with our assistant pastor's family. Boasting about his musical talent, Adolphus asked to join the music group that sang during communion service. After hearing him audition, the leader settled on a compromise. Adolphus could stand with the others and sing, but only if his electric guitar remained unplugged. He had absolutely no musical ability. Each time the group performed thereafter, Adolphus stood with them and sang and played his guitar, which thankfully produced no sound. Generally, this compromise worked well, except for the Sundays that Adolphus skipped his medication and felt led to do a gyrating Joe Cocker imitation across the platform as the rest of us lined up to receive the body and blood of Christ. The day came when Adolphus asked to join the church. Elders quizzed him on his beliefs, found little in the way of encouragement, and decided to put him on a kind of probation. He could join when he demonstrated that he understood what it meant to be a Christian. And they decided, and when they learned, and when he learned to act appropriately around others in church. Against all odds, Adolphus' story has a happy ending. He calmed down. He started calling people in the church when he felt the craziness coming on. He even got married. And on the third try, Adolphus was finally accepted for church membership. Grace comes to people who do not deserve it. And for me, Adolphus came to represent grace. In his entire life, no one had ever invested that kind of energy and concern in him. He had no family. He had no job. He had no stability. Church became for him the one stable place. It accepted him despite all that he had done to earn rejection. It gave him a second chance and a third, and a fourth. Christians who had experienced God's grace transferred it to Adolphus. And that stubborn, unquenchable grace gave me an indelible picture of what God puts up with by choosing to love the likes of me. I now look for churches that exude this kind of grace. Our church is called Grace Church. And so every Sunday and every Tuesday or Wednesday when we gather in care groups, we have an opportunity to practice our name and to communicate grace to those around us. We have an opportunity to glorify Christ and demonstrate the gospel in the way we relate to those who are differing. Than not different than us. And so every time we gather becomes an opportunity to say, am I looking to enjoy my clique or am I looking to serve my family? Every time we gather, we have that option and we have that choice. We have an option to reach out, to welcome, and to build our lives with those who are different, whose preferences are different than us, whose style is different than ours whose likes and dislikes may be different, but we find ourselves joined together in this little small group or in this church, joined by the blood of Jesus Christ, joined as brothers and sisters, joined as family. We either celebrate and demonstrate the gospel or we deny the gospel. We're a gospel community, and and we get an opportunity to display that. You know, I was thinking particularly about our small groups. If I think, boy, it's hard for me to be in my small group because the people are different than I am, I just wonder if maybe that's the exact way God designed it. So that your gospel cannot represent what it means 
to be in a homogeneous unit where everybody's the same, everybody looks the same, smells the same, acts the same, thinks the same. We can find clubs all over the place that reflect that. But rather, where people are joined together who are different and are working out their salvation with fear and trembling together in the power of the gospel. We all have that opportunity. As we wrap up and leave today, in light of the gospel, I just want to ask, who would God be calling you to reach out to and to welcome by his grace? Who is it that God's calling you to step out beyond your comfort zone and to reach out to, not as some sort of pet project, but because it would please the Lord and because it reflects a heart changed by the gospel and because it reflects grace and because it reflects honor to the one who is the glory. You know, who would that be? And if you get called by someone today you haven't, just don't, don't think you're Adolphus, okay? I mean, and don't do that. I'm not going to call up Bob, my friend here this week. Hey, Adolfa, Bob, Bob, hey, Bob. Did you see a dolphin? Bob, have you seen a dolphin? Yeah, that's what I, I mean. You're not calling up people to be our Adolphus because we heard a moving story. But we're trying to represent the work of Jesus Christ by the grace of God. Who could you send a note to this week? Who could you invite to your house in your home that you might not normally have had in your home for some reason? Maybe there's it's just someone you don't know very well. Maybe there's someone that's a bit different. Maybe they're a different age or a different stage in life. Maybe they're alone. Maybe they're isolated. Maybe they don't have many connections like you do. They have many connections like you do in the church. What does being a hearer and a doer of God's word mean? Well, it means that when we gather for worship, we gather primarily with vertical eyes towards Jesus Christ, who is the glory. But we realize that those vertical eyes affect our horizontal eyes. And so that we welcome others as we've been welcomed. We reach out to others as we've been reached out to. We love, serve, care, and honor the person of Christ by being the body of Christ and advertising the gospel in bold letters to all who would be near us, saying there's something different about that group. There's something different about they relate and how they relate and why they relate and who relates together. I really can't figure that one out. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the body of Christ. It's the work of the Savior. May God have his way in our midst. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.